Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Oh, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Mark Andre. Is it Andre? Did I get it right there? Yep. Cool. Yep. He's with Flip My Site. Uh, we're going to talk about something that's really cool about buying, fixing up, selling websites, and doing that as far as in the business acquisition world. I appreciate having you here today. Uh, yep. It's something, you're doing something currently I've tried in the past, and I kind of, I buy and hold these days, but I'm, I'm still intrigued by, so I, I I, I wanted to put you on here. I wanted to pick your brain, and, and then I thought it would be great to share that for other people who want to. There's two different avenues here, right? There's people who could do this for for money, like they can buy websites and flip them for money, or almost every business you buy probably should have a website. So a lot of stuff we can talk about or be things that you can do to improve something that has a website that goes with it to help make the web the website more of than just a cost center. It could be a profit center to the business. Let's start off with telling people who you are, kind of what you've done in the past and get people on the board with why we're talking to Mark Andre today. Sure. So um, I got started my, with my first website back in 2007. So at the time I was working full-time as an auditor for a finance company and I had done, I'd created some small websites for friends and family, like just like old school static HTML websites here and there. And I was looking to make a little bit of extra money. So I thought, you know, I'll set up a little portfolio site for myself and see if I can find some clients outside of my personal network. And I knew I wasn't going to get any traffic to a little portfolio website. I wasn't going to rank on Google for web design or anything like that. So I put a blog on the site and started publishing some articles related to web design and tried to get traffic that way. And at the same time, I was really um, studying a lot about social media and SEO, and I was new to, to everything. And just trying to learn what I could about getting traffic and growing an online business. So right. I had a good bit of success early on with social media, especially. And some of the stuff I was trying, I wound up getting a good bit of traffic. It did work with getting some clients. I did attract a few clients. I got more leads that you know that didn't wind up turning into clients. But basically, it worked. But what I realized pretty quickly was that I enjoyed growing the site a lot more than I enjoyed the client work. And so I decided to kind of shift my focus and I just started to focus on trying to, to grow the blog. And I still took clients here and there as people contacted me, but I wasn't like pushing for it on the site. And I really, I put ads on the site and was monetizing the site with ads. And later on, I added digital products for graphic designers and web designers, stuff like Photoshop templates and that sort of thing. And later on, then I also moved into affiliate marketing. So I wound up being able to leave my full-time job in 2008, so it was about a year and a half I worked on the site part-time, um, left my job and focused on that full-time, did that for a few years. I sold the site in 2013, so I worked on it about six years at that point. And I sold it for $500,000, which for me as just a person working on the site myself, I did have a few freelance writers here and there and freelance designers, but it was a you know fairly pretty significant amount of money for me. And so that really got me interested in, um, you know, just building online assets and, and selling. So after that, I've had, you know, sites in several different industries. I've had a few photography blogs. They were monetized with digital products for photographers. I had a, a personal finance blog, wound up buying a few web and graphic design blogs and flipping them. My wife and I also did some Amazon FBA stuff for a while. We wound up selling that business after like two years. So all that's, all those sites that I've mentioned, I've sold at this point. I had two exits this year, um, personal finance blog and then the, the graphic design blogs. So it's I've had a, about, I think I've had six different six-figure exits. I've never had anything like million plus, but uh, you know I am 
just mostly a one-person operation. I do hire freelancers, but I never had any employees or anything. My goal is basically just working on small internet businesses and kind of stringing together a bunch of small wins and trying to get you know to where I want to be financially. So do you primarily do a build and sell or do you actually buy some of these and in the essence of like flipping houses, do you flip some of these sites? Yeah. Most of my experience is with building from scratch, but I have bought three sites. Um, one of them I still own is, is a small site and two I've sold. And of those ones that I've bought, they've all been within the last three or so years. So I did start, you know, kind of moving towards that. Um, I'm interested in buying something if the right situation comes up, but I'm not like, you know, like some investors that buy everything. Like I also want to starting my own sites too. Yeah. The concern I have, I'm in the same space you are. I actually own a little media holding company that holds this podcast, a couple of newsletters and blogs, and then uh, we're acquiring newsletter blogs and usually combinations. So a blog or a something that started to or already has a subscriber base where they own the email addresses and They've got a weekly, quarterly, or monthly, or daily contact with those guys through some type of email subscription. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in that just because I'm the reason I hold brought the whole subject up. I'm a little concerned with all the Google updates and your traffic going up and down. When you buy one of these websites, you're typically, I think the going rate currently is about 30x. So for those guys that are listening, most of our guys listening in there in the world of buying small and medium companies, and I say 30x and they panic. Because they're talking about 30 or 3x EBITDA. When we say 30x, it's trailing 12 months revenue. So most of these websites are or sold, bought and sold based off of their revenue over the, the average revenue over the last 12 months. Like I, I know right now, I can think of at least three people. I know they're just really having a hard time with one of them in the last month or so, maybe 60 days now. Uh, with one of the last Google updates, uh, one of the guys lost 80% of his income. So his website got a hit. Hadn't been hit in years, bragged all the time about he's never been hit by it. He's got good content, lots of links. And um, he has a site that does a lot of how-to articles. Everything's how-to this, how-to that. Google kind of went after those guys this last round. And uh, how-to articles took a hit. And now he's, you know, his income's down. Like I think he said in the worst week, it was 80, 80% that week. I don't know what it is currently because when those hit you, you start scrambling to get traffic from other locations and do other stuff. I don't know where he sits at the moment. What is your concern? Do you not buy these because of that? Because you're paying 30x, you're paying 30 months worth of you know, income. And then on the next day, Google makes an algorithm change. What was 30 months income becomes 300. Because <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a concern for me as far as, as buying goes. And I, I do tend to be very conservative. And that's one of the reasons why. I tend to build more than buy. So that that is definitely a concern. I think the Google updates, Google updates have always been around, but it seems like within the last two years, they've gotten more frequent and more significant. And there were definitely were some big ones. My first blog um, got hit about a year before I sold it. I lost about 30% of the traffic and I was fortunate. Um, and this kind of brings me to the next point is, I think one of the things around that is a lot of the, a lot of content-based sites are monetized strictly with ads or affiliate programs. And with those revenue sources, your revenue is going to take a, a proportionate hit probably if, you know, if you lose that traffic. I was fortunate with my site, I had just started selling some digital products. And so my, even though I lost 30% of the traffic, my revenue actually didn't take a hit because I had an established email list. I had a little bit more brand recognition at the time. Yeah, And with selling digital products, I had more options. Like if I needed to make money, I could run a sale. I could uh, sell my products. I sold products at third-party sites like deal sites and marketplaces and stuff. And so when you have those other revenue streams, there are ways to, to make up for a, a loss in traffic. But I think traditionally, like especially over the last several years, most content-based sites have been monetized with just ads and affiliate revenue or one or the other. And so I think one of the best things that, that you can do to protect yourself is have those other types of, of revenue streams. And, and certainly, like you mentioned, the newsletter is huge because, you know, if you lose traffic, you can always reach your, your most loyal subscribers through the email list. Yeah, that's what, <clears throat> when I look at, I want to, like, somebody asked me yesterday what my buying criteria is on websites because I told them I, 
he asked me what I bought, and I said, well, websites, newsletters. And I made it really general. And uh, he said, well, what's the criteria? Is there anything that's a red flag inside a website? I said, yeah. I personally think that any more than a third of their traffic coming through Google or organic searches is, is, is a red flag for me. So I want to see 33% of the traffic or less be based on Google search. And that protects. So one of the things it protects is you can see that they have a lot of traffic from backlinks, maybe traffic from newsletters and social media activity that they do. But if you can see that it's not the primary source of traffic, then if Google went totally away, the biggest hit you could have is 33%, right? And uh, not only, and, and that's hard to say because most people don't pay enough attention to that. And they, you, you find very few websites that will be like that. There'll be 33% or less traffic from there. But you can find some that, that's 40 or something. You look at, okay, with the, you know, some more social media, and they're not very active on social or whatever. So you can look at the formula. I can get this there pretty quick. Right. Mm -hmm. What I'm concerned constantly about is where sites that are 70, 80, 90 percent of the traffic's organic search, you know, they've got 300 or 200 links, you know, uh, backlinks. They didn't take a look at that. They don't have an email list. Right. And they're monetized only on ads. I just don't touch those. You, you can make a lot of money monetized on ads with a lot of traffic, but then you're at the whim of where the traffic comes up and down or goes. Or I like what you're doing with the product because need to increase revenue. If you got a good product, you could start buying ads. Maybe you never bought ads before, but you can go, you can go, okay, cost, customer acquisition cost is a dollar. I make the lifetime value of a customer. They're going to buy two or three products from me because I do templates and they're going to come back for more. So my lifetime value of it three, four times that, you know, you can buy customers all day long when you know both of those numbers, what your customer acquisition cost is and what the lifetime value of your customer is. Yeah. And I think another thing too, with the, the search traffic is a lot of sites, like pretty much every site, if you have it long enough is going to get hurt, get hit by a Google search algorithm update. And right now with those updates just happening recently, we're looking at like the low point, right? Like a lot of sites are going to recover eventually. I've had sites that, that lost traffic and then a year later and another update either maybe not totally reversed it, but, um, Traffic will come back in a lot of cases, uh, certainly not all, but it, it's easy to look at things at the low point and see the worst of it. But chances are, you know, that some of that will probably come back at some point. So a lot of people, I asked somebody the other day because he asked me, he's an investor with me. You know, he, he's a private lender for real estate transactions. And he asked me why I, that is a sticking criteria for me. And I said, well, Google uh, algorithm changes, you know, probably two or three times a month. He's like, no, that's number's too high. That's way, that's way too high. So I Googled it. I looked it up and seeing like, well, how many times has Google changed their algorithm? And I'm looking at it right now on my other monitors. In 2021, they made over 5,000 changes. They averaged five to 600 changes per month to their algorithm. Some of them are just minor, like right? they right. don't hit us. But if you're doing that many changes on a regular basis, it's going to hit you. So it's not like if it'll ever hit you, it's when. It's gonna, you're going you're gonna to have to deal with it. It's something that's a constant. So that's one reason I want to keep the uh, organic Google search traffic or any even being or any like, I don't want to keep search traffic at a, at a, a general. I want it to be pretty even across the board with other traffic I'm getting, all right? Mm -hmm. Or at least know a roadmap that I can get it there. That, that said, I've never heard of anybody saying, hey, that Google algorithm, my traffic doubled since that Google algorithm. I don't know how they managed to hurt a bunch of people, but I've never seen anybody boasting that their traffic doubled overnight because Google changed their algorithm. Yeah, it's weird how that works. It feels like they're just constantly taking away traffic when you know somebody's getting it. But it's got to go um, somewhere, right? Well, it's going to the big guys. From what I'm understanding, it's going to the, you know, the CNNs and the the Fox Newses and the big, 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 you know, tier one sites of the world. And Reddit just got a big bump from the I think it was a helpful content update two months ago or whatever it was. The same one that talked all the how-tos and the informational mm -hmm. stuff, which is a lot of stuff on Reddit, right? Yeah. First-hand experience articles, a lot of those, you know, a lot of people had that stuff on their websites, took a hit, and then all of a sudden Reddit, Reddit gets the traffic. It's like, you know. Yeah, I mean, before people were looking at, at keywords, and if you would see a Reddit thread or a page on Quora or, you know, one of these other forums ranking on the first page, that's that has traditionally been a sign that it's a relatively low competition keyword and that a blog should be able to rank for it. And now it's kind of reversed. You see those and you can't assume anymore that you're going to be able to outrank them. 
So what do you look for in either the, I'm going to build this or, or I'm going to buy it? What is your criteria to build or buy? For me, it starts with something that I know. I don't necessarily have to be like an extreme expert on it, but it's something that I need to at least, you know, be familiar with and have an interest in learning more if I'm going to, to run the website. Like say, for example, I'm hiring freelance writers to create content. I don't necessarily need to be the most knowledgeable person, but if I want to edit and evaluate that writer's content, I have to at least know somewhat what I'm talking about because otherwise you end up publishing stuff that just doesn't, you know, doesn't resonate with the target audience. So for me, it's got to be something that I'm interested in and that I'm somewhat familiar with. I don't just go on Flippa and look for random websites on whatever topic and, and buy them. It starts with the topic and it's got to be something that, that I want to work on. I typically hold on to sites for a few years. Most of the sites that I built, I've had for four or five years. I'm, I'm not, uh, some people take the approach of, of buying a site and looking to improve it quickly and turn around and flip it and sell it in like six months to a year. Um, that's not the approach I have. So it's, it's gotta be something that I want to work on for a few years and something that I see myself spending a good bit of time on. And, and since I do a lot of the work myself, I don't outsource everything like some people do. It does have to be something that I want to, to spend my day working on. But yeah, I, I'd say that it really comes down to the, the topic is the most important thing for me. What is it usually, what's the cycle, the life cycle of a website? So you buy a domain and you, like let's talk about build first and we'll talk about buy. You buy a domain and then walk me through buying the domain all the way up to where it's making money. Like what's the life cycle look like? And so, like you said, the first thing is domain. So that, that's something that I personally struggle with is, is finding a domain that I like, that's available, that I use a tool called Lean Domain Search. Usually um, you put in a keyword and it will show you all kinds of, basically adds words to the beginning or the end and, and helps you to, to find a domain. So then set up hosting. I always use WordPress. So installing WordPress, most of my sites are content-based. So even the ones like, say, for example, the photography sites where I sold digital products, I still publish a lot of blog posts and stuff. And that, that was one of the ways I, I got traffic to the site. So I always, you know, start with, with some content. I've had sites in the past that were monetized just with ads at first and others with, with the products. So it really depends on the approach. Like if it's product-based, like the photography sites, I created products immediately and had them to sell before I had any traffic, which I know some people would say, you know, start with content and then add products later. I started with the products in those case and cases and I wound up selling them initially on other platforms. So I would find like third-party sites that I partnered with and sold the products on their site. So I started to get some revenue right away and then worked on building up my own audience at the same time. So in that case, like with the photography sites, I started making money almost immediately. There really was no, no wait. But uh, for example, uh, my finance blog that I started in 2018 and sold in 2023, I, it took a while to, to start making money. I, it was just content-based. I was making, monetizing the site with affiliate programs and ads. I initially planned to do some digital products, but never really had anything that I wanted to do that I thought I could, could do really well um, that hadn't already been done. So I wound up just sticking with affiliates, affiliate programs and ads. So that one really didn't make much of anything for the first year. It's just constant cranking out content, trying to get some links, trying to get traffic um, from, in that case, it was Google, Pinterest, email list, click through traffic from links. So um, it really has been a slightly different approach with, with different sites, depending on how they're monetized. So we put out right now, we put out about three to five uh, articles a week, not including some stuff we write for other newsletters that I have an ownership interest in. So uh, we do another three or five for those. Uh, Usually it's reviews of podcasts and stuff like that, where we listen to it, download the transcript and then turn it into a written article and a review so that people can read something in 10 minutes. They don't need necessarily need to watch for an hour and a half. That said, how do you get the initial first traffic to those or links to it? Like when you first put up, you're just waiting for Google to show up and find it. Or is there a way that you use to like right now, we're, what we're doing is we're putting them out on Medium and some of the other locations. We're not just putting our articles on our blog. We're giving it to locations where people already go look for articles. 
what are the methods you use to get some initial traffic to your, your site when you fire it up? Yeah. So, um, social media can be a good option. Uh, I found Pinterest to be a decent option. It's, it's not as good as it used to be. Like when I was running the photography blogs from 2012, 13 to 2016, even a little bit later than that, it was really good for, for traffic, but they've changed the algorithm and obviously more people are using it now than, than used to be. So there's a lot more competition for exposure, but Pinterest is still pretty good as far as social networks go. Cause a lot of, a lot of social networks don't really want to, they want to keep the traffic on their platform. They don't want to send clicks away. Pinterest is one that, that is, you know, is okay for you know, using links. You don't get buried in the algorithm or anything. If you have, you have links, I've always done a good bit of guest posting on other sites. I think that's a good way to, to start to, to get something flowing. It doesn't, a guest, guest post, you can't really count on getting floods of traffic from it. Like you're not going to put your link on some article on whatever website and get thousands of people clicking on it, but it will get some clicks. And if you're doing it on, on, on highly relevant, like sites that are targeting the same audience can be good. It's also really good for starting to get some links, which will help the Google traffic pick up. And it's also good for, it's, it's really good for networking and connecting with other people in your niche. One of the things I did early on with my finance blog that worked pretty well was one of the first posts I, uh, I linked out to a bunch of resources. So in this case, the article was about making money selling on Amazon, which is something I had just done a year or two years earlier. And so I had an article that had a bunch of different resources for Amazon sellers and people who wanted to start a business. And then when the article was published, I reached out to the people who I linked to. Some of them were big companies, so I didn't reach out to them, but the, the ones that I thought I could get an email in the, the hands of, of somebody who had you know, any kind of influence, I would email them and say, thanks for whatever resource you offer. I just want to let you know I mentioned it in this post. And a lot of those people wound up sharing it on Twitter or other social plat platforms, which helped me get some traffic to the site. One guy wound up putting it in his email newsletter, and I think I got like 300, 500, something like that clicks from his email list. I also did some like similar similar type of thing where you're you're notifying the people that you're linking to or featuring in your content. I created a list of top finance blogs and then reached out to all those people and told them that they were on the list. Most of them shared it on social media and stuff. So that, you know, those types of things where you're kind of like leveraging somebody else's audience can work. You can also kind of do the same thing with interviews at times, like interview somebody who's got an audience, publish it on your site, and they will usually share it with their audience. Um, so all these things, like they don't individually have a huge impact, but when you start to add them all up together, they start to help you build your own audience. Yeah. We've noticed that works on a lot of their things. So, uh, top 10 posts really do well on a lot of the social media. Like, uh, even if it's just, I've interviewed a ton of authors. I didn't even realize how many authors I'd interviewed until, uh, we were doing a thing where we're doing a flashback Tuesdays where we feature reintroducing re an old show to the current audience we have, like, cause our show's grown quite a bit over the last couple of years. So every Tuesday we'll feature a show we did early on or whatever. So I started with the authors, like I'll start with the authors, right? Cause people might have a connection with those. And so I started looking at it and like, I dug up like 42 books, that, 42 authors out of 170, 180 interviews, 42 of them have written books on that are on Amazon. Some of those books are awesome. And some of them you know, are, are good. But, you know, here, then I thought, here's a top 10 book that anybody listening to my show probably should read to move their game forward. So we did that one, and it's got five, 6,000 impressions just on uh, LinkedIn in the first week. It's been shared 30-something times. It's like it took off. And I know some of the others. I only know two or three authors on that particular list because there's a lot of the books are outside of buying and selling companies. It's like financial intelligence or uh, negotiations and that type of stuff. The other thing you said on there that, caught my attention is the social media sites being okay with links that changes constantly. Like yeah. link six months ago, LinkedIn was fine. If you had a link in your thing, you get just as many impressions. Now it's dropped off where, uh, you have to, you put it up in the, in the, um, like when you do the initial post, you put a link in it, you don't get as many impressions. And then for a while there, we're doing pretty good about posting it and making it the first comment, like the links in the first comment mm -hmm. that was okay. And then now that doesn't work. So now the current algorithm or the current way to get around it is 
follow me, like me, and we'll send you the link later, about an hour later after you get a good flow. And and that's kind of the hour, hour and a half kind of, a lot of these social media sites, after about the first hour and a half, they've already did their algorithm determine how much they're going to put it in front of people. So we go back and put a link, you know, link in there later. But it constantly changes. TikTok used to be great about, it could be in the first comment. Now, if they find a link anywhere, they dead, they dead list your <laughs> your thing. You just don't, they, they quit showing up on anybody's feed. I think that's a, it, it's, it's to the point now where I actually have a job description out there for a head of social media or a head of what I call a head of growth is what we called it. But basically a social media manager, it takes somebody who wants to eat, live, sleep that, know what, you know, which each site, what algorithm works and what doesn't work on there. And then how to, how to utilize and perfect the sharing of content on each one of those. Yeah, it's different, different depending on whether you're really trying to build your audience or trying to get traffic from social media. Like you can, like you said, publish stuff on LinkedIn without a link and get a lot of exposure and helps you to make connections and all, but it's a little bit of a different approach with trying to drive traffic to your site. Yeah. We want a combination, right? We want those connections because we want to build a rapport and trust with those people over time. And I've only got about 11,500 followers on there. So I want more followers. I want people looking for my content. So I want good content there constantly. But I do want them to go listen to the a podcast. I want them to go go read a blog post, right? We're not monetized on LinkedIn as much. You know, I don't have a product that we sell directly on the site. So we, we get our money by them visiting the shows and driving our numbers up so sponsors want to pay more, right? It's got to the point where now I've got enough followers on Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff. Twice a week for my top two sponsors, I actually post a recommendation uh, to my social media. So yeah. what's the, what are some of the aspects, if somebody buys a company, has an existing website and stuff, what are some of the aspects they can do to monetize and utilize a, I think most businesses miss out on this. I think there's a huge opportunity to take and monetize a website and make it be not only just a cost center for something you probably should own and maintain to make it be a profit center. And I'm not talking about just, you know, make the phone ring a little bit and get a few more customers. What are things people can do inside of, you know, inside of their site that will actually help them produce more traffic and produce, turn it into a profit center for the company. Yeah. So if you're talking about something that's a business first, not just an online business, um, ad revenue is probably not going to be the option because most businesses are not looking to have ads on their site and send people away from their site. I've always been a big believer of digital products. They work really well in a lot of niches, uh, a lot of industries, and probably in more than, than you would think. Sometimes you, you hear a a topic or something and you might think like, well, I don't know how I would possibly put a digital product into that. But there's usually options, especially with things like courses and workshops. Printables are really big in in some industries, spreadsheeting on what you're doing. So there's a lot of options there for digital products. But I think one of the, the biggest things that I would say is probably using the website to build an email list because a lot of more traditional businesses probably haven't emphasized an email list. Maybe they have one um, for existing customers, but they haven't really aggressively pursued it. So I think that would probably be one of the the places I would, would suggest starting with would be using your website to email list and try to, to grow your audience that way because you can continue to com- connect with those people and communicate with them, get offers in front of them, whether it's for your own services, for products you're selling, digital products, affiliate, sponsorships, whatever. You know, I just realized there's one that we don't do currently at all, and I probably should. Maybe usually between Thanksgiving and, and the new year, I don't actually record these shows. Right now, uh, the show that you and I recorded will probably come out any time between now. We, we, I have enough shows recording that if I stopped today, there would be, we wouldn't miss an episode. We'd, we release twice a week. We wouldn't re- miss an episode until January 12th. We've got content backed up. And the reason is, is it's really hard to get people on these shows between Thanksgiving and New Year's. People are traveling and all that. That said, I use that time to plan out things. One of the things I think I'm missing is I have a little pest control company in Oklahoma that I'm partners in. I own a piece of, and right now it's, it's just really small. But I think the, a lot of these businesses, we get so many calls by people who 
have a problem, but they don't have money to fix it, or they have a problem and they don't realize how expensive is certain, certain treatments are and the chemicals we use and stuff. So we can't do things much cheaper. We have the chemical expenses, got fuel expenses and trucks and spray equipment, all that we have to charge. I honestly think, uh, do you, and some of these, some of these cases people could do themselves, right? Some things work. That said, I think we should actually have a bunch of do your, do it yourself type of articles and stuff on our site. Like when that way, when people call and the, they answer the phone, like, yeah, I'll have to call around. I don't think I can afford that. Well, you can always do it yourself. Check our website. We have a couple of ways that you can actually, you know, deal with some of this on your own. If it's mice, how to trap right for mice. If it's cockroaches, safe things you can do, things you probably shouldn't be using, chemicals that'll just make it worse. That there are some decent things you can do that are tried and true that work over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you could also do like short video tutorials. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about, about that situation, it kind of reminded me of back, see, it was about 10 years ago, my wife and I were finishing our basement and I did a decent bit of the work myself, mm. planned to do it all myself, but wound up running out of time and we had a baby on the way and I was trying to get done. So I wound up hiring somebody to do a lot, but I didn't know at all what I was doing with some of the things. And one of those aspects was running the, the ductwork for the, the heating and air. And so I was, I Googled how to, you know, to connect into your existing ductwork and wound up on a website of, it was a, a contractor, a company that, that actually does this service. And they sold for, I think it was like between 50 and a hundred dollars. They, they had a, like a video course and it was nothing like high tech. It was just a guy with a video camera taping one of his coworkers showing exactly, here's what you do. They were in a couple of different houses and. It was exactly what I needed. It was perfect. And I gladly paid the money because like you said, I didn't want to spend the thousands of dollars to hire somebody else to do it, but I was happy to pay 50 to a hundred dollars to get a video that taught me how to do it myself. So I think those sort of things, there are probably a lot of businesses, especially service related businesses like plumbers and electricians. Well, electrician, I don't know. You really want people who don't know what they're doing, touching electrical wires, but, um, well, the liability of, of that one, right? Like, like, yeah. You get electrocuted and they're like, I watched your video and then I got shocked. Yeah, that, yeah. that's probably not bad guy. Same way with the chemical thing. I don't think I would promote chemicals so much, but there's some really good, they're not fast. There's, there's a trick, right? When, when a pest control company comes in, we can get something done in one or two tri trips, right? There are good alternatives that are natural, that are not fast, but they are effective. A lot of the pest control companies will never tell you the diatonation's earth is a very effective for most bugs. The problem is you got to keep it dry and it takes weeks. Basically, all, those, all, the, all the critters you're trying to kill off are dying through dehydration. Basically, it gets in their exoskeleton and keeps the, the, the moisture. They can't hold moisture anymore, so they basically die of dehydration. But if you got cockroaches or even like maybe bed bugs and stuff like that, and you can tell where they're coming from and where they're storing and you can keep it dry because once it's wet, it doesn't work anymore. You lightly dust those areas and you can wait weeks before the problem is under control, then it will thin the herd. It's more like I've seen some studies that show on certain things like bed bugs and cockroaches where it's almost more effective than a single treatment. A lot of times we have to go out two or three times to do things, right? But, and it's fairly safe. You could take diatonaceous earth, put it on your finger and lick it. It's basically just silica. It's not going to hurt you. People eat it for something. I don't know why you would ever do that. It's basically microscopic pieces of glass, but it, it's not harmful in small quantities. There's just things out there we could, probably could write articles on and say, look, you either want something done fast and it's going to be expensive, it's going to be costly, or you want it and you want it done. Or if you got a little time and you don't have very much money, you can get this stuff on Amazon, put it around, and it'll take care of the problem. And in that case, you could use Amazon affiliate links and, yep. and earn a commission from those referrals as well. Yeah. And then I think they have, there's probably the do, your, do it yourself mode. One of the cool things about do it yourself mode on a lot of these blogs and stuff, even, even for you, like you're selling photography stuff, it's look, here's how you build this filter yourself, or here's how you do this manually in Photoshop. Or you can download this thing for $1.99, $5.99, or $29.99, and it'll do it for you. What you'll find is if you give somebody the step-by-step -step instructions and they look at that and go, man, it's going to take six weeks to get rid of cockroaches by putting tight, tight tenacious earth. They're going to be crawling on my food for six weeks. Yeah, I'll go ahead and pay this guy the $200 to, to send his crew out here. That'll be $200 this week and three weeks later, there'll be two hundred you know, $150 or something for them to come back and do the follow-up. It's worth $350 bucks to, to have this problem gone, right? Where mm -hmm. some people go, I don't have it. 
I'll buy that $20 or $15 thing from Amazon and I'll wait the six, eight weeks to, and keep wiping that down and putting dry, dry stuff out. They'll do the other route. Yeah. And those types of, you could use the same concept for a lot of different types of businesses, showing people how to do things and offering an alternative if they don't want to do it. It's like your construction guys. I guarantee there are people that look at that. They bought that $150 video and they looked at that and like, I'm not doing all that. Yep. And then they call them back up and go, hey, I just bought your video and I want you to come do it because I'm going to mess this up, right? That, that works, right? So that, there's that avenue for anybody that has a website that they could do. What's, the, what's some things you won't touch? Are there areas where you're just like, you're not interested in either building, buying, or being participating in the, in the website space? I mean, anything that typically that ad networks don't deal with, that web hosts don't deal with, anything like illegal, pornographic, anything like, like that, I'm, I'm not going to touch. Definitely nothing that I, I don't want to be associated with. But, you know, like I said before, like my, my criteria is pretty tight since I'm looking for something that I'm personally interested in. So... I don't want to do anything with physical products and shipping products. I did Amazon for a while. So she learned your lesson. And of course, <laughs> was that was that was different because we were just getting the, the products from China, and then they went straight to Amazon's warehouse. We weren't for fulfilling orders, yeah. but I don't have any desire to to deal with that again, at least not anytime soon. I met a guy who does really he likes to travel. He travels the world. He goes all over the place. And what he does is when he, the way he pays for his travel is he finds products and go, you know what? They don't sell this in the U.S. This would do really well there. And he used to build like Amazon stores and all that and get license agreement. It was just a nightmare for him. And now what he does is he knows people here that are always looking for new products. He takes a piece of it and he, he negotiates the license agreement, but he holds a couple points for himself. And then he hooks them up and they sell here in the United States. So there is. I'm not a person. I, I always, I jokingly call them SIB businesses and I'll be nice on the show here and call it stuff in a box. So I don't play in the stuff in a box businesses either. And the main reason is because I live in a digital nomad type of life. I have a tiny home. This is a mobile studio and I don't want the ship back. So even if you're drop shipping, when they get, you know, a lot of people know this, most drop shipping situations where when they ship it back, they ship it back to something you own, right? I don't have anywhere to warehouse the stuff yeah. in a box. So you if I have to... What was that? It's just not fun to deal with. And you don't know half the time when you're starting off with these guys, how many returns you're going to get. It looks great. Everybody can take a great photo of anything. I don't know how many restaurants I went to because I looked online and, man, that food looks great. And you go sit down and it tastes horrible. <laughs> anybody can make a great photo. Not anybody. A good photographer can make a great photo out of something that's not a great product. Just because something looks good online doesn't mean it's actually high quality. So a lot of the dropship stuff that you would do that dropship, Amazon store stuff with, you're going to get a high return rate on. Yeah. I was surprised when we sold on Amazon, how many returns we got. And we compared to the competitors and stuff, I don't think ours were too bad, but I just didn't, I didn't, I don't personally return a lot of stuff from that I order on Amazon. I just didn't really think about it, but we did get a lot and they did get returned to the Amazon warehouse, but we would get notified every time. And then eventually you would have, we would have them shipped from Amazon back to us. And of course, the packages are all destroyed and everything. So we need to have to try to see, okay, which ones can we repackage and, and, and sell as new and which ones are beyond use. So that, that was surprising. And one of the things that, so our category in Amazon had free returns. So of course, Amazon's basically encouraging people just to buy stuff and try it and then if, return it if they don't like it. So we would have reviews that people were, were complimenting the product and saying, I bought five different products of the same one and I wound up keeping yours. And I'm thinking, oh, that's glad you chose it, but I know there's other people out there who are doing the same thing and buying five and returning ours. And so it, it's, it cuts into your profit margins for sure. I was yeah, I was listening to, I think it was a My First Million podcast. The guy on there was a multimillionaire. Like he's a founder of a company. And he got kicked off or he got, he got not kicked off, but he got his returns limited on Amazon, some other stuff. Cause he realized that he had a, they had a 12 month return policy. So he'd buy his whole wardrobe on there and every 12 months he would just ship it back to them, ship everything back. He'd keep packaging it up, ship it back and then he would get new clothes every, and, and it was basically abusing the policy, but I know there are people doing that. And in probably my youth, I probably was guilty of it. Walmart, you should take everything back. I, I probably was at least guilty once of something would break. And you go to Walmart and see if they have the exact same thing still. And you buy that one and then you change in the broken one, <laughs> right? 
It's horrible to do, but you know you've done it. A lot of people, all, all of did it. We did it. I remember doing it with a car radio. We bought a car radio. We had it probably 12 months or something. It just quit working. So I went back there. They still had that one. I bought a new one, installed that one, took the old one in the box and took it back and said it doesn't work because it was past their return date. Not fair, but it, that happens. That's why a lot of these st- stores, I don't buy anything from Best Buy out of principle because they have a 15% restock. Really? I yeah, they know. have a restocking fee. It was high. And with consumer electronics, sometimes they just, they do just break in the first few months. Like, why should I pay you to take this back? It was defective to start with. Hmm. I had, I got a really good brand. I won't say it here, but I got a really good brand router once. And from the start, it seemed slow within about a month. It just quit working. I take it back to them and they're like, oh yeah, it's a 15% restocking fee on a $200 product. And I'm like, yeah, why would I do that? Like you sold me something defective, but that's spawned from the stuff you and I are talking about. People buy five things and keep the best of them and return the others. My problem is I'm, I'm lazy on the returns. I couldn't ever do that. I couldn't buy five things and return them all because they would just sit somewhere. And I was like, my wife would, I was like, Hey, where did they go? She'd go, oh, I dropped it off at Goodwill. You weren't using it because we live in a yes. tiny home. We have a tiny stuff. It would not stay here. Oh, I have my, I didn't wait for Chris. Here's a good example for Christmas. Bought my son an Oculus, right? And wasn't sure which headset to get headset to get him. So I got the one with the big heavy battery on it. I thought, well, maybe that's gonna make it too heavy. So I got a regular, a more comfortable head the, the headband on it. One without the battery on it. He's never even taken the one without the battery out of the box. So now it's sitting in there and she's I'm gonna sell this on Amazon. She can't get what even half of what it's cost because mm-hmm. nobody wants that one without the battery. She can almost sell it on eBay or whatever. It's gonna sell for pennies on the dollar. So I wouldn't do that. And we waited too long to turn it, take it back probably to ship it back to them. Anyway, let's go back to the whole concept of how do you identify a, I mean, you, you choose a niche that you're interested in. Some people, if they did that, they would pick a niche that was really hard to, to monetize and grow, right? You happen to be in a, a couple of different niches, personal finances, because you've got your, your finance background and then photography, there's a passionate audience behind the photography niche that, that will buy stuff. Not all of those are passionate, profitable areas. Yeah. I mean, photography is definitely an example like um, of where people are very willing to spend money. And like you said, not all of them are. You could have some other, um, you know, really random hobby that just doesn't monetize well. So I mean, I, I don't do as much research on, on before I start, but part, partly that maybe it's because I'm, I tend to be a little bit more aware of them already, um, because I'm not just choosing mm-hmm. a random one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does help to, you can look at other sites. I think one of the best things to do is look at other sites, uh, popular sites targeting the same topics and look at how they're making money. Are they selling products? Are they, um, offering services? Are they, um, do they have some sort of community, like a membership type of thing and see what they're doing? Are they promoting affiliate pro- products pretty aggressively? And that will tend to give you an idea of like, you know, the, the best ways to monetize a site on that topic and whether it's possible or not. If all you see is ads and there's not much else, that's something that I personally would not go after because at that point you're just in a traffic game. And like we talked about earlier, you could spend a lot of time building up your search traffic and, and getting a ton of traffic and then it could go away and you lose a lot of your income. So I tend, if, if I see something that really can only be monetized with ads, I tend to stay away from those. I get that. So ads and even affiliate products means traffic that comes in has to go out, right? So mm-hmm. if you're counting on getting eyeballs on something you're created, you spent the time and energy to write the blog post, to create the graphic, to make the product, and your re- your revenue is dependent upon the eyeballs coming in, going back out, then it's kind of a de- self-defeating machine a little bit, which you, you know, I think that's a great idea. I love that you productize and put products on there because then you've got somebody who comes there. You're a destination and not just a route to what they're looking for, right? To where if you're writing blog posts and you're sending people to buy products and other stuff, you're pretty much just a, you're the map. You're the route for which the, what, you know, the end result they're looking for. Most people aren't looking to, okay, I'm going to go read an article. You're trying to solve a problem. And sometimes your, your article might solve the problem, but at least here in the United States, we're really geared towards, uh, you know, I've got a problem. What can I buy? 
almost before we do anything else. And if you have products, especially digital products are really good for affiliate programs. So like mm-hmm. instead of we were talking about if, if you're making money on your site through affiliate programs, you are sending traffic to someone else. If you have a product, you can be that someone else and set up your affiliate program, get other, other sites to, to promote your products and, and get traffic from them. And I did, I did that with my photography stuff. I didn't have a, a huge affiliate program, but I kind of recruited some blog owners mm-hmm. and, um, you know, people who already had traffic to the pages on the topic that I wanted to, to convert into sales of my products. And it worked pretty well. Um, I definitely got a decent bit of, of traffic and affiliates made some money and I made some money. So that is another reason to have products. And it, it also helps with traffic generation. Like we were talking before about like, what do you do if you're starting from scratch? Having products and affiliate program is, is another option to, to try to start to get some traffic. See, I knew having this conversation would across, uh, spur some brilliant ideas. You know what a loss leader is inside of a retail mm-hmm. store and stuff? Yeah. I never even thought about this, but before our newsletter business, what, what would stop us from creating, not necessarily a loss leader as, as much as a high value, high 75, 80% even uh, affiliate program where like, look, we'll give you 80% of the first sale on a product that is geared towards somebody having to sign up to our newsletter or sign, at least go to our website, see our newsletter and stuff like that. But they get, they get the, the revenue because then we get the permanent eyeballs. So for, for a digital educational product, you could do a good how-to, make it worth $100 and give the $75 to anybody that does the sale, right? Yeah. And another thing that works good for that, that approach or for that purpose is selling low-cost digital products. Because mm-hmm. people are pretty quick to buy like a $7, $17, you know, $30 product, more, more so than to buying like a $300 product. Um, and, you know, when people buy those products, then if they get added to your email list, you can continue to market to them and upsell them eventually on, on other products. And I did that with um, my photography stuff. A lot of the products were, were lower priced and it, it's not that hard, especially, you know, in a, in a passion niche to, to sell a, a $7 product and, and it works pretty well. Another option is partnering with, with somebody else who has an email list. I did that a few times with my photography products. I would partner with somebody who had a, a similar audience, but didn't we didn't sell the exact same type of products. Like they weren't directly competing. Um, and I would promote their products to my email list, and they would promote my product to their email list. And and what I found from doing that was promoting the smaller, like lower price products through somebody that had a, a pretty big, pretty active email list. I could make a lot of sales of a small product. I didn't make a ton of money. They made some money as an affiliate. But then um, what I found was as I released new products, like I, I released products like maybe two months later, and I was seeing a lot of these same people that were referred were now buying these other products. And so, yeah, when, once you get the, the people who tend to buy on your email list, it's a lot easier to make money. And so, you know, getting those products and offering an affiliate program is great for that. So that's a great idea. And uh, stores use it all the time. They run sales ads and stuff like that. And they're, they call them loss leaders, but a lot of times it's either breaking even or a slight loss just to get you to the front door. And then they put that item at the back of the store where you have to walk past all the cool stuff, right? Yeah. But you can do the same thing with a great affiliate program. It's like the upsells, right? You can put the, the initial product there and then have off, offer an affiliate program on, you know, this educational piece or this filter or this tool, this digital product, and then wait seven to 10 days and turn around. It happens all the time in the real estate space when I used to own the RIA, but you wait seven to 10 days to say, Hey, cool. You got that. How you liking it? Oh, by the way, now that you have that, you probably need X, Y, and Z here. Here's some other stuff we have that would help with that. And there's also shopping carts and checkout platforms that are made to optimize conversions. Like mm-hmm. one example is Thrivecart. I use that for my photography products and they have, um, so like when someone clicks buy now they go to the, the checkout page they have options to where you can o- offer order bumps so mm-hmm. like i had um, my main product was lightroom presets which is similar to like an instagram filter where you're basically applying an effect to a photograph and so say somebody adds a set of lightroom presets for landscape photos to their cart then they see an offer for a video course on 
how to edit photos in Lightroom. And it's offered at a discounted price. And so they can check a box to add it to their order and, and save some money. And that was really effective for me at you know increasing the average order rate just by offering a related product. And in a lot of cases, it's a higher price product at a discounted rate. And you'd be surprised at how many people just once they're already in the mentality of buying a product, it's just something about the mentality of, okay, yeah, I'll just check this box and add something else to it. And I do the same thing when I'm buying stuff, digital products online all the time. I'll add it and then I see the additional offer. And I'm like, well, yeah, I really could use that too. So um, just go ahead and, and buy that. And so that's you know another way to, to increase those orders. Yeah, so one of the reasons I don't go into some of these stuff is I don't know how many times I went into a, even in, like went to a seminar and bought another seminar. I went to stop by to get that free book for $7.99 for shipping and handling. And the next thing I know, I've got a, you know, $400 worth of stuff in my basket because they had cooler stuff than the book. It's a good avenue. And I think it, just to translate this to all the guys out there listening that don't have digital products and stuff like that, you can create those and you can take this same ideas and apply it to, other stuff. Like I was thinking for the guys at the pest control company, one of the things we have a license for is we can actually fertilize yards and stuff. We have the, the permits and license to do it. We'd have to swap out the chemicals in the tank or bring a second tank, but there's room in the truck for the second tank. So what about maybe an upsell is, is when spring rolls around before the grass goes off, we can, we could kill off any weeds and seed and fertilize your lawn right after we pre-treat you for termites and ants. So I mean, yeah. there's upsells, cross-sells, and, and things like that that are that you can do in any industry. So you can take the same thing to another industry and go, how do I apply this? So how do people reach out to you? Are you actually actively looking right now to acquire sites? Or looking for, do you help people flip websites or is anything that my audience, what would be the best way for our audience to help you out? I'm not actively looking to to purchase any websites. If I happen to come across something that is a good fit for me, I'd be open to buying it. My my site is flipmysite.com mm-hmm. and there's a contact page on there if people want to get in touch. I, I do some some freelance work. I also do some consulting. So you know anything content related, SEO, um, digital marketing. So if people want to get in touch, I could could be reached that way. Okay. Well I appreciate having you here today. We actually are at the top of the hour. It went pretty quickly. So thank you for being here. We'll call that a show. All right. Thank you. Hang out for just a second. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now